Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Woodfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And as part of that, in this series, I'll be speaking with some of Scotland's leading authorities on the impact of COVID-19. The conversations are with fellows and with members of the RSE's Post-COVID Futures Commission, who are keen to share their expertise and experience. You can find out more about this work at rscovidcommission.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at news underscore RSE. Today I'm speaking with Professor Neve Nick-Dade about how we can use learning from the COVID-19 pandemic to enhance Scotland's ability to effectively utilise data, evidence and science in in preparing for and responding to future challenges. Professor Neve Nick-Dade is Director of the award-winning Leverhulme Research Centre for for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee and an authorised forensic chemist working on areas as diverse as fire investigation, clandestine drug chemistry and explosives. A member of RSE's Post-COVID Futures Commission, Neve chairs its working group on data, evidence and science. So who better to speak with us on this important topic? Neve, as director of the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science, an important objective for you is about promoting a good understanding of science among the public. I mean, mean, overall, how successful do you think that the Scottish and UK governments have been at presenting scientific information on COVID or on the response to it? I think it's all a bit mixed. To, to be uh, perfectly honest about it. I think the the initial um, information that was presented to us uh, when the COVID pandemic really began to take hold in the UK in, in March, and when we were all facing that initial period of, of national lockdown, um, I thought that the communication was actually pretty good. And I thought that it was, it was quite clear and the messaging that was used was um, clear and and precise to a large extent. We all knew what it was was being asked of us, what we had to do, and the importance of why we needed to comply with uh, the requirements that our government really um, um, imposed upon us, but did so out of an extreme necessity. So I thought the initial stages of that communication were good. When you look at how it was done and you begin to contrast, actually, the styles of the different governmental leaders across the four nations, it became really different and diverse. And I thought that was a very interesting development. So you had in in Scotland, the the First Minister of Scotland giving a briefing every day at noon. Everybody knew that was happening. Everybody tuned in. And what I thought she did that was a standout for me was that she had a signer with her. She had somebody behind her that signed everything. So immediately there was um, a a, a responsiveness to the diversity of the community she was trying to speak with. And I thought that was really clever. Not clever in a a clever sense, but it was clever because it involved us all. It meant that that government was signalling the fact that it's not just just speaking to to one section of society. It's trying to speak to all of society. And I thought that was a very... um, I thought it was really important to do it, and I thought it was done very well indeed. Um, and then some of the other um, uh, devolved, devolved governments followed suit. They had their own press um, conferences, and, and, um, and they followed suit, I think, the Welsh one and, and, and in Northern Ireland. Um, 
But the UK government, our, our prime minister, still doesn't have a signer when he gives his press briefings. And so you, you began to see, I think, a different approach to how government, uh, government centrally and then government in the devolved um, uh, areas began to try to communicate. I think as things moved on, um, that communication wasn't so good. And I think having um, a, a, a changing and I, and I almost, <clears throat> in, in some places, a, a dilution of the message, because I suspect if I walked out now out of my house and I asked the first man on the street or woman on the street that I find, what tier are we in? And what does it mean? And what are we supposed to do? I would get some people scratching their heads because we've, we're, we're confused now. The message isn't, it's, it's no longer singular. And, and I understand why they've done that. But I think as this continues, that singularity of message was the thing that at the beginning was, was so importantly so importantly done and done very well, whereas I think it's become diffuse and complicated now. I mean, that's that's interesting in terms of, you know, how you balance that sort of more nuanced approach in terms of action on the ground with that wish for a singularity of, of communication. And, and we've seen that in the debate just last night uh, down south in the House of Commons about some of the some MPs wanting a sort of smaller scale uh, approach to COVID, COVID, if you like. I mean, I mean, are there particular ways you think that could be balanced a little bit better? It's a really good question. It's a, it's a, I think that the balancing of this is really um, tricky um, because you, you want people to, to trust what you're saying and to comply when they need to comply. And I think getting that balance right is, is a difficult one because the, the, those that are sending the message are, are trying to get the message across in a way such that people will come with them and they will trust the advice that they're getting and they will follow the advice that they're getting. Um, and I think as, as the pandemic has, has, you know, as we've been in this process now for well, nearly 10 months um, and we're facing the, the challenge of Christmas coming and what are we all going to do about that, um, getting this, this balancing act of clear and acceptable and palatable information and then on the flip side of it, um, media reporting and indeed other reporting, and rightly so, of the, of the increasing consequences of what our current situation is doing, both to our economy, to our mental health, to our physical health. Um, it's, it's trying to keep convincing people that actually it, it is really important that we follow some of this advice uh, and keeping them with you. And I think, again, um, across the devolved uh, governments, some have been better at doing that than others. And if you look at the model of, uh, for example, New Zealand, and lots of people hold New Zealand up as a, as, a, as a good model for how you do clear and effective communication. And a lot of that, I think, in the early stages was about making that um, not just intellectual um, uh, connection with the people you're talking to, but making an emotional connection with them as well. And to say, look, we are actually all in this together. And it's only by being in it together and going through it together that we're going to come out the other end of it. And I think, again, looking across the devolved uh, governments, some have been much better at doing that and having that empathy than others. And I think we're going to need it increasingly as, as people get really worried about their futures now. I, mean, I think what you're sort of pointing to there is a real... <laughs> 
so there's actually a real complexity around communicating effectively that yes there's something about the facts and the hard science if I can put it in that way but you also need to think about these wider issues about how that information might be received I mean one of the things that I imagine was really difficult for, for governments in the early days of the pandemic in particular was just the uncertainty around uh, coronavirus and the effectiveness of potential responses I mean for example you can look back at what was being said at fa- about face masks very early on and, and that's obviously a, a, quite a difficult when you're using evidence to um, inform people's behaviours or sometimes direct them or they're going to have consequences for individual businesses. So, so how can that kind of uncertainty, do you think, be communicated effectively and without losing the confidence of the public in government or indeed in, in the scientific community? It's, it's a real challenge for scientists. We Science is about understanding the world around us. <clears throat> it's about gathering data and information and it's about making... Um, building knowledge out of that 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 basis of data but of course the more data you gather the more you learn the more you learn the more your view might change and so science is all about that that sort of journey of discovery pinning scientists down and saying give me a yes or a no answer to this question makes us incredibly uncomfortable because we're not we don't want to because we, we don't want to we can't be that certain um uh, and in the early stages of something as as impactful and important and and potentially um with the potential ramifications of something like a serious pandemic that we're facing or that we're currently living in um uh, the challenges that that throws up i think for scientists it makes us really uncomfortable because we don't have all the answers and we we become more and more are comfortable the less data that we've got. So in the early stages, you're absolutely right, in the early stages, um, we didn't have an awful lot of information about this. And what we were doing was we were using um, data that we had from other significant um, viral um, events, like, you know, people. a lot of people talked about Spanish flu, a lot of people talked about other types of, of influenza and, and COVID-type um, viruses. Or, or, or others, SARS, Mars, all of these, to try to use them potentially as ways of saying, look, this is how these things might spread. Um, as we started to gain more knowledge and more data, um, I think that the, the, the scientists became a little bit more comfortable. But the, the, the nature of what they're being asked to do is one that is inherently uncomfortable for us. And I think the real challenge here is around... Um, enabling people to to both understand the complexity of the situation, but also to understand that the scientists are not going to be able to give you a certain answer, uh, or an answer with certainty is probably a better way of putting it. Um, and so we will always caveat things in probabilities or in possibilities or in chances. Um, and people don't want that because our policymakers, and particularly I think our the people that are standing out in front of or behind those podia speaking to um, everybody on the news at their five o'clock briefing or their 12 o'clock briefing want to be trying to give a really clear message. So there's a, a, a real um, conflict, or not, conflict is perhaps not the right word, but there's a real push and pull here where the scientists are, are, are really cautious and they caveat everything around that caution, and rightly so in my view. And the, the, the people that have to deliver the message need a certainty because in their view, the public need a certainty. And What's the solution to it? In my view, one of the solutions to this is to be as honest as we possibly can be and as open and as transparent. 
by saying and and you know by by caveating what we say in with the limited knowledge that we say it and and to enable people to understand why we can't be certain and it's that fine line and it was interesting watching the early press briefings about who who the the politicians had on either side of them so so who did they ask to speak and on what basis and how did those individuals engage with the public? And again, I think stories and narratives are everything around this. Making it real to an individual person is really important. But also is how you do that, how you speak with confidence and what you, what the way in which you carry yourself when you're giving that presentation. And, and, and we, we get that when we give evidence in the courts is how, how are you portraying yourself in terms of delivering that information? And so all of those things, there's the there's the the overt message, but then there's the sort of subliminal cues to say, as a member of the public, is this person believable or not? Do I trust what they say or do I not? And, um, and I think that all of that comes into play around this. And I guess part of that is is getting a better understanding amongst people about actually how science does work, as you say, about it being a journey of discovery rather than something that's going to tell you tell you the answer or, or explicitly the answer. I mean, it's interesting you just mentioned then actually sort of giving evidence uh, in the courtroom. I mean, alongside the challenge of uncertainty, there is also the complexity around a, a lot of this. Is there anything from your experience of being an expert witness in, in the courtroom that you think we can draw from the courts in terms of how they deal with, um, you know, ex, uh, witnesses? is giving really complex information to a to a lay audience is there any learning for us there i think the critical thing and, and giving expert testimony in court of course is is <clears throat> there are parallel there are similarities but there are a lot of differences as well uh, um uh, in terms of what we're talking about but i think the 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 most important thing um is to have a clear line of communication and by that i mean not just being able to talk clearly or being able to talk with confidence. It's being able to understand that the the information that if I'm giving evidence in a case that I have in my head, that I have discovered or I have have, um, uh, understood from the work that I have done, is being able to communicate that particular piece of information to the target audience. And in the courts, the target audience is always the public because they are jurors. So being able to ensure that what I know and the knowledge I have is put into the right context and delivered to the people that need to make a decision about it in the right way, such that it lands for them. And that's actually quite challenging because I, I know what I'm trying to communicate, but I need to try to understand what it is that I need to say in order that somebody else understands what I'm trying to communicate. So you need to really know your audience. You need to really understand where they're coming from what sort of um, uh, background they might have um, in terms of understanding of science or understanding of numbers or whatever it might be, and then put your message clearly, succinctly, without jargon to that person so that they understand what it is that you're trying to say. And that's hard. It's It comes with experience. It comes sometimes with training. Um, and it, it, it's, it's something that... Um, isn't always achieved in a terribly strong way by expert witnesses in the courts, as well as by people who are trying to deliver messages to us. So what do we, what do we learn from, from doing it um, as an expert witness in court? I think clarity of communication is really clear or really critical. And I think removing the jargon is really important. Um, 
because experts sometimes can hide behind it. It's our comfort blanket, and we can we can we can hide behind the big words and the scientific words. But actually, does that achieve our ultimate goal of getting the people that we're talking to to understand what we're trying to say? Um, and, and so those things, and if it's appropriate and possible to put it into a narrative of some sort, a story that um, contextualizes the information you're trying to give in such a way that people get it. And so they, they can make then the decisions based upon the information you've provided them with. And it's, it's tough. It's difficult to do that. I can't resist now, Neva, plug for the work that you're leading for the Royal Society of Edinburgh with the Royal Society on the judicial primers. So that the work to uh, make, even for, for very educated and uh, members of society, actually the need to convey that understanding of, of complex, complex issues. Uh, absolutely. And, and the, 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 the primer project was the brainchild of um, the previous Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, Lord Justice Thomas. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique collaboration. Um, and I, and I, I really do mean it's a unique collaboration. I don't use the word lightly. Um, between the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the Royal Society, the Lord President and the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. And we have a, a, a fantastic steering committee that's mixtures of um, fellows of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, fellows of the Royal Society, and then some very, very senior judges. Um, and, and of course, yourself as, as a CEO of, of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and um, your, your equivalent in the Royal Society. And it's been a really interesting, challenging project because what we're trying to do is we're trying to create essentially bench books, so, so, so documents that judges can, can use to refer or use as reference for scientific evidence going into the courts. And the job here is not to make the judges into scientists, far from it. It's to, it's to enable the judges to make a decision about the admissibility of evidence. And, uh, and in that regard, um, what we're trying to do and what we have done is written uh, a, a very, in very simple prose, uh, an understanding of a particular evidence type, whether it's DNA or forensic gate analysis or statistics or ballistics or whatever it might be, such that they understand what is the accepted science so that what you're putting into the courtroom isn't a trial about science. It's a trial about the, the relevance of a particular um, a piece of evidence in a given circumstance. And so the, the, the judicial primers are for the judges to enable them to do that, but also to articulate the limitations of this evidence type uh, when it's used within that criminal justice context, or indeed civil justice context, um, so it's been a great project to be to be part of. It's a real privilege to be part of it, and I have to say, it's it's like our research centre. It's this this uniqueness of bringing together scientists and lawyers to talk outside of our usual frame of reference, which is the courts, which is not a comfortable place for a scientist to be, um, but to bring together those two. Uh, different disciplines and mindsets and cultures and to to enable them to have fantastically fruitful conversations is a real privilege it's really quite an outstanding project and, and and you know it must be really difficult whether it's for judges in in a court case or in terms of you know uh, ministers having to make decisions if they don't have that understanding i mean as you know i'm from an analytical background but i've still found myself pouring over the data thinking i don't quite get this or or what does it mean and i can see sometimes things have been presented with best intentions about showing you know where the sort of variabilities are and levels of confidence but it's still been quite difficult to understand what do we do more generally about sort of enhancing scientific and data literacy among among both the public and indeed particularly our decision makers 
I think that's that's a it's it's such a challenging aspect, isn't it? I think that the the raising of um, both data literacy and scientific literacy is a, is is a huge challenge for for all of us and for for society in in general. I think if the pandemic has shown us nothing else, it's that there's a real need to do this. Um, and in part, I think what we're seeing is the is the age of science communication beginning to come into its own. Um, it's it's growing into its paws, one could say. Um, and I, I I think we have some areas of absolute excellence. We've got some some people who really get this and who are really good at science communication. Um, and you know, in in part, it's 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 for us as the the natural scientists or the social scientists, the people that work in academia, the people that work in in trying to translate some of the work that academic institutions do and and enable our 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 um, politicians, policymakers, decision makers to understand what it is that we're trying to say. It's in part it's around enabling them to make that translation in a way that's clear. But I, I really feel that um, tr- teaching people the skills of science communication is something that now should really be embedded in everything that we do from uh, as young an age as is possible. And, you know, we um, we look and we, uh, and I think in, in particularly around academia, but also many organisations now as well, we talk about um, public engagement and we talk about the importance of public engagement. But from my uh, perspective, I don't think very many of us actually understand what we're talking about when we talk about public engagement because public engagement is a two-way journey the the engagement is the critical word in there and engagement has to be in two directions if we're having a conversation and I just talk at you how do I know that what I'm saying is actually what I what what I'm meaning to communicate how do I know that you're understanding what it is that I'm trying to say if I don't ask you and if I don't engage with you and so learning that two-way journey is critical and we are simply not very good at it in in academic institutions public engagement is often not very well invested in um, it's often one or two people that are overwhelmed by the amount of work that they have to do and the public engagement professionals are need to be I think empowered and 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 trusted to trusted by us academics to use our information and to help us communicate it properly. So the increase in, in scientific literacy is all about language. It's about talking with each other. It's about engaging with, with you know, the, the, the scary public out there. It's about asking them questions around, do you understand what I'm saying? And being prepared for them to say, no, I can't understand what you're saying. And working on that with them so that we can get that message across. And the same thing with data literacy. That's a harder one um, because I think that the raising the general numeracy and literacy of a population is really important but it's really hard because lots of people don't like maths and statistics um and so it's 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 a it's a challenge but it's one i think that that we have to rise to so much of our current lives and in my view certainly without doubt our future lives are going to be data driven and it's it brings and it's one of the things that we're speaking um about in our working group for the um, the RSE Commission, um, it, it's raising that understanding of who's taking our data, what are they using it for, how can we give consent to it to be used, how can we refuse consent for it to be used? If we don't give our data to people, are we then automatically going to be disenfranchised from society and from the benefits 
that uh, a data-rich society provide? Do we have a choice? Do we not? Unless we understand what data is and what it can be used for, how can we make those informed decisions? What's the ethical issues around it? So all of those really complicated, meaty, weighty topics, I think, are, are we have time now, I think, to discuss these in a general sense. But in order to do that, the public whose data is being gathered needs to understand what the issues are. And that's that's a real challenge. And it's probably worth saying, I mean, obviously, as you know, that's one of the things in terms of the Commission as a whole is putting a great um, emphasis on conversation, discussion and debate, not a lot of just telling people things. And as you know, it's a journey we've been on at the Royal Society of Edinburgh. So with our Tea and Talk series that we held um, as part of our summer programme, just to have 10 minutes for somebody talking and then to have a conversation around it where pe- in, in a space where I hope people do feel they're able to ask a question or disagree with something or put their put their views in. So I think the more more we can do that, the, the better. I'm, I'm conscious what you said about um, universities valuing uh, public engagement. And it, am I right in thinking at the moment it's not a metric that's particularly taken uh, taken into account in terms of uh, rankings and things like that? There's obviously a lot of emphasis on, on, on publishing research. Is there something you think we could do there to support more of that culture? Um, I, I, I think you're you're right. Um, it's not it's not certainly not in Scotland, a metric. It's it's emerging in England and Wales as, as a metric through um, the, the yet another measurement tool called the KEF, which is, I think, Knowledge Exchange Framework. Um, and so it's, it's becoming more um, recognised, I think, within the academic uh, circles as something that's important. One thing that is becoming, <clears throat> um, I think, more heightened, and, and there's been a real step change in about the last maybe 12, maybe 18 months, is um, around what funders are requiring, so the people that fund our research. Um, In the past, only very few uh, funders like the Wellcome Trust and others um, required as part of some of the grants that they they give that there's a public engagement component, that there's there's an explanation part, a a front-facing sort of impact part. Um, Increasingly, the major funders for other types of, of research um, and uh, the United Kingdom Research and Innovation Organization, UKRI, are now putting a lot more emphasis on citizen science-based work and public engagement work. And they're asking for it both as they're funding both research um, and activities within citizen science and public engagement in its own right. And then they're asking for citizen science components to be, or public engagement components to be presented within ordinary grant applications. So the funders are beginning to shift their their model. And um, a lot of that was spoken about by the previous chief executive officer um, of UKRI, Sir Sir Mark Walport, who spoke when he became the CEO of UKRI about increasing this aspect of bringing town and gown together uh, and and, the importance of making science useful to the public. So I think there's been a shift that way. I think the universities are slow to keep up with it, to be perfectly frank, um, because I think, but I think that that's changing and I think it's changing quite fast. Um, some universities are much better at it than others. Um, and there is a, a, a move in the right direction. But of course, universities have an awful lot of other pressures upon them as well. Uh, and particularly now, given the current situation with COVID-19 and the, the increased pressure that's putting on the higher education um, sector. 
So public engagement within that is, is beginning to emerge. Some are better than others. Some universities have put in place public engagement experts. But they're still too few, in my view. Um, I think we should be using their expertise to allow them to enable the researchers to understand, actually, public engagement isn't going off and doing a few lectures. It's much, much more than that. And, and I guess there's a bit of there's a bit bit of a moment here as well, isn't there? In terms of, I mean, you've got sort of general members of the public talking about the R number uh, and and sort of uh, rates of infection and things like that, which you know is is people are engaging with science in a way that they might not have had to do uh, sort of in in other in other times. Um, I, I mean, one of the things that, that sort of strikes me is actually about actually how do you then build on that. Your continued understanding. I mean, it's interesting to see also who's bubbled up almost in those in those conversations. And what's been good to see, I think, is actually a wider diversity of voices from across the scientific community, whether it's on Twitter or appearing on the radio or on the television. Um, how how do we sustain that greater engagement with the public around science? I mean, I think I think it's a really good question, and I think it's it's one that you know we've, we've science has now become such a, a, a common word and, and, you know, phrases like we're going to follow the science or we're following the science or, you know, uh, those kind of, of words, the R value and understanding what it means gives us a fantastic opportunity as scientists and science communicators to build on it. But the question that you ask is absolutely the right and relevant one, which is how do we do that? Um, and I think in part it's about bringing, um, for me certainly, it's about bringing the public into our research themselves so that they become part of it, so that they become uh, equal partners to a large extent. So having things like citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries involved in not just um, research work that academic groups might do, but involved in in the general business of government to have uh, a sense check with the public, a barometer, if you like, um, around what we're trying to, to communicate and on the scientific side, having citizens' juries and citizens' assemblies at universities um, or in large research centres, we have one at the Leverhulme Centre, um, is, is a real eye-opener for both the researchers but also for the public. And they become your, your, your best advocates. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, there's, a, there's multiple ways that you can do this. You can do public engagement work that involves working with um, uh, libraries and schools and science centres and professional bodies and national academies. But you can also, and that's very outwardly sort of pushing, if you like, um, but also you can bring those public into you to join that journey and collaborate on that journey with you and share that experience with you. Um, we do um, also a lot of um, science work through uh, the media, so working with um crime writers and other fellows of, of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, people like that, um, but also a wide uh, group of, of um, science writers, or sorry, um, crime writers, um, to help them get the science right in their books. And all, all of the science that the crime writers I've worked with have been passionate about getting the science right. They want it to be correct because their books are read by millions of people. And so that's another opportunity for science engagement. We're also involved in... in um, in working with a, a, a theatre company, looking at putting science into plays so that people begin to question, understand and explore science. So there's loads and loads of different ways of doing it. But I think the key to it is using multiple avenues and not being afraid to, to work with the public to co-produce scientific information, 
but also to co-produce the means of communicating the scientific information because that makes it fun. It makes it understandable and it, it, it creates it uh, into something that's, um, that's easy to translate, I think. But it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of willing. In my experiences, working with the public um, has, been, has, has been really rewarding um, probably the scariest group to work with are our children about the age of five because they just keep saying, well, why? And that's really challenging um, to try to answer it in a way that they understand it. I mean, one of the things that feedback from a couple of people who did the tea and talks was actually how useful they'd found those sessions with members of the public because it made them maybe rethink afresh what they were doing or particularly how they were communicating or aspects they might not have either not thought about or hadn't realised that were maybe as relevant and as of interest to people in 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 the, in the way that they were. I mean, I mean, turning maybe more now towards actually how government uses data, evidence, and science. I mean, you referred earlier to to the primers' work and uh, and the work that's been done to bring together members of the judiciary with, with academia um, and tackling complex challenges does require that diversity of data and research and we've seen that writ large in response to covid we've had immunologists modelers behavioral science and, and all sorts of other uh, academics engaged but that has led to discussions about well well who's what type of science and, and data and evidence and who's whose data evidence and science you know it must be very difficult for government but how, how do they decide what is required? And I guess more importantly, how do they ensure there's a transparency around that approach? I think that is very difficult um, because the science, as I said earlier, is, is, a, is, is a voyage of discovery. And, and sometimes, often, um, when, when we are undertaking our experiments or we're looking at the data that we've gathered, you see things that you don't expect that that causes you to pause and causes you to perhaps change your view. Um, and one of the ways of that science works is it brings in the perspective and points of view of others. And so that we collaboratively as a scientific community look at discoveries, we write them up in journals, we get them peer reviewed, send them out there into the world, and then people will will agree, disagree, build upon, tear apart what you've done. And that's the natural methodology of what we're doing trying to to do that and to have that sort of natural um as i put it voyage of discovery um in a truncated time frame where decisions have to be made quickly about what you're going to tell a population to do in order for them to to, to keep them safe and to protect um to protect them and protect their health what data do you pick? Who do you ask? How do you decide that this piece of evidence or this piece of information is more valuable than another? That's a really, really tricky one, I think. And I think that the the, the way in which our governments tackle it and, and many governments around the world tackle it is they bring together learned colleagues and individuals who have not just um, academic learning, but who have, I think, also real world experience of how things develop and change so that they bring ju not just the, the sort of um, the cold data almost that a research project or a research study will bring, but also the, the calibrated expert knowledge of how that can be implemented and what might happen next and aggregate, bring those together to try to come to a consensus of some type of what might be the next thing that we need to worry about or what might be the next course of action to take. And so I think in the early days of, of the pandemic or any type of um, rapidly unfolding um, issue that we have to make decisions about. You're, you're always basing it on on data that's just not well 
um, there's not there's just there's just not an, an enormous amount of it. So you have to put caveats in place, as I said um, earlier, and then try to come to a consensus. And there will be people that will disagree, and there will be people that agree. How do you pick who to follow? In it must be incredibly challenging for government to do this, because the scientific data and the way in which we as scientists will interpret it is only one bit of the picture. It's our bit. It's the bit we're really invested in because it's ours. Um, and we want that information to be translated and trans uh, provided because it's important. But we only see one piece of the pie. We only see one bit of the picture. Uh, whereas government officials, policymakers, people who are informing our politicians and what they're supposed to say and what they should say, have much broader aspects to also look at. And they will also be getting advice, for example, from healthcare professionals, from business, from um, border security, from all sorts of different elements. And they have to try to aggregate, bring all that together to say, this is the direction we're going to take. I think what becomes really challenging for members of the public listening to that is when those directions change course. Because then we're going, well, hold on a minute. You know, yesterday you told us to do this. Today you're telling us to do something different. Um, face masks is a really good example. You know, face masks aren't going to help you. And then actually, yes, they are going to help you. So we should all wear face masks. And, um, you know, making that decision uh, and finding a sufficiency of evidence to make that decision was really critical, I think. Um, but it took a bit of effort to get there and to then convince um, the politicians to say it to the public because... Certainly in this part of the world, it is so alien to our culture to wear face masks that there's a, there's a big you know, question mark as to whether the population would have ever done it. But they did because the message was sold the right way. Uh, and so I think a lot of this is about, again, that aspect of communication, of trusting the, the people that are behind the information in such a way that you're, you're going to be able to make the decision to comply with what we're being asked to do or not, as the case may be. Um, I think when it starts to get into further down the road, as we are now, and it starts to get into perhaps a little bit more of the real world going on around us and a little bit more politics might be creeping into um, the way in which decisions are being presented to us or choices are being presented to us, that becomes much more muddy and, and, and cloudy. Um, and so it's, you know, in the early days, not much data, lots of different things that we need to decide on. As you get more data, then that number of decisions that you need to make starts to reduce, I think, is the normal um, uh, way things go. And so you have more certainty around the decisions and what the outcomes might be. But as with anything, we have, in, you know, we're in uncharted territory, unprecedented times, and the decisions that we make and whether we comply with them or not will have consequences both known and unknown. And it's the unintended consequences of what actions we take that are probably the things that are, are most concerning as we go forward into the future. And, and I guess one of the things that's maybe differentiated the COVID experience from, from other challenges has been both the, the gravity of, of, the, uh, of the situation, but also the urgency of it, where things really have to be made made very, very quickly. I mean, just in terms of, I mean, obviously, the UK government has the Scientific Advisory Group on Emergencies, SAGE, and there was 
a lot of discussion earlier on in the pandemic about actually what sa- what discussions SAGE were having, whether they're being made public. And then we had a, the independent SAGE being set up, which I think was partly a response to that lack of transparency. As we've moved forward through the pandemic, uh, how effectively do you think governments, both uh, north and south of the border, are doing now in terms of effectively harnessing and utilising mechanisms like SAGE or in, in, in Scotland, the COVID-19 advisory group to support and inform their, their thinking and decision making? Um, I think that they're they're having mixed uh, success. I think with it. I think one one of the things that surprised me quite a bit was, um, as in the early stages of the pandemic, the, the, the phraseology that was being used was that we were following the science and and um, you know making decisions based on the best scientific knowledge. And I think that the the the, the lack of transparency around. The, the meetings of SAGE and of other um, advisory bodies, that to a certain extent doesn't really worry me that much. And the reason for that is because, or the reason why it doesn't worry me is because in, in conversations with peers, when you're talking about data and what it means and how you derive a meaning from the information that is in front of you, you will get disagreements and you'll get quite... Um, you know, the polarised views drawing ultimately to a consensus or not. And what what the public need is a, a direction of travel and they need a clarity around that direction of travel. So making the, the, um, the conversations that SAGE would deliver overtly public and transparent perhaps wouldn't be very helpful because there will be disagreements across them. That's inevitable because they're all scientists all looking at things in slightly different ways. I think that the so I think the way in which the messaging has been done has been actually quite helpful in both governments north and south of the border have had scientists or public health um, representatives or law enforcement or whomsoever uh, when they needed to be at the podium they were at the podium and they were given their voice to speak so I think that that was was a good way of doing it and I think the people that communicated that from the science side generally speaking did a good job I think one of the interesting things is that. This, the, the members of SAGE are also speaking independently of SAGE um, and that they are also providing their voices and the authority of their voices in an independent way. Um, uh, and that's an interesting sort of development that, that's occurred um, also and, and in parallel with this. I think it should also be noted that the scientific community, um, global scientific community, actually have really, I think, surprised even themselves here because in the early stages of the pandemic, as far as I know, um, uh, the scientific colleagues in China released their DNA um, profile, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, um, of the virus that they had, had um, uh, uncovered. And they released it um, globally to scientists to try to get the scientific community, and particularly in life sciences and biological sciences, to work together on building a vaccine. Um, the publishing houses created um, or, or allowed all scientific papers, more or less, that were published in any journal that were related to COVID-19 to be open access. So suddenly you had a huge amount of scientific discovery happening that everybody could get access to so that we could work truly together as a global scientific community. Um, some of the machine learning and AI specialists over in the States produced for free uh, a means, a, a COVID-19 um, uh, research tracker, if you like, 
which gave us instant access to all of these journal papers searched by keyword. So you had this huge amount of activity going on. And what has it resulted in? Well, my goodness me, what used to take us 10 years, we've done in 10 months, we've created a vaccine. And that just shows you, I think, that if we work together, if we generate the data properly, if we enable the scientists to actually do the science in a way that's open, transparent, collegiate, then we can really make a difference. And if we can do it for something as serious as COVID, why can't we do it for something as serious as climate change? Why can't we do it as, for something as serious as uh, curing you know, um, uh, some of the, the, the terrible diseases that, that humanity is, is faced with? We've just shown to ourselves what we can do if we work together. And we do it with trust, with openness, with transparency and with compassion. And that is a real eye-opener. I mean, it's interesting what you say, both in terms of actually we've had experts uh, from various different sectors standing at the podium next to the first minister or, or the prime minister. There's been experts who've been developing vaccines or indeed better treatments for covid do you think the country has had enough of experts or do you think this has maybe um, uh, brought experts back to the fore in, in maybe a more positive way than, than previously? I think that's an interesting one. I think, um, has the country had enough of experts? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. I think that, I think the, I'll, I'll turn it around a little bit. I think that the country wants to hear from experts who can properly communicate to them, who don't talk at them, but talk with them, who, who, enable them to understand things and don't just tell them what they have to do. And I think that's a very different type of expert. I think what the country um, expects is people who, who, can, who can make this real for them and who can make the solutions um, transparent and trustworthy. And I think that's a different type of expert now. Um, I think that if we, if we shun science and shun experts and expertise, then we potentially lose the opportunities that those experts and expertise can bring to making the world a better place. Um, so I think it's a it's a it's a challenging um, it's a challenge for the experts to to a certain extent make themselves more more able to communicate their science in an effective way. But also it's a challenge for the people who are receiving that to open themselves up to the fact that they they also need to move a little bit with us and to understand that science isn't black and white and it's never going to be. You're never going to get the yes, no answer. And that, you know, scientists make mistakes. But what we do is we learn from our mistakes and we build upon those mistakes and we, we, um, we ensure that those mistakes are not, um, they're not for all for nothing that you learn from them. A great example, I think, is um, the, the COVID um, vaccine that's come out of Oxford University, where an error produced actually a defining result. Um, the, the, and, and the scientists were completely upfront about, you know, we gave, we gave one group of patients a different dosage than we intended to, but goodness, look at the result. And so that those kind of step changes in understanding often come from somebody doing the wrong thing, but not, not um, being admonished for it, if you, if you see what I mean, but actually going, what can we learn from it? What does that tell us? Um, and so I think we, we need experts to be more open and better communicators. And I think we need the, the recipients of that expertise to be a little bit more acknowledging that it ain't black and white. I mean, you, you were talking just a, just a minute ago about actually the 
the, the some of the positive things if i can say that that come out of the pandemic in terms of the collaboration across the research community and that and that sharing of sharing of data i mean one of the challenges particularly earlier on in the pandemic was actually about gaps in data we know that covid has uh, both shone a spotlight on and reinforced inequalities in in society how do we ensure that data evidence and science doesn't further ex- exclude people and actually can be developed in, in a way that actually enables us to better understand for example what is the impact of, of covid on on people from black and minority ethnic communities or different groups in the in different parts of the country um have you got any thoughts on on that well i think you're absolutely right and i think that it's it has very much shone a light on the way in which data is collected the way in which different communities are content to provide data um and that is again all about having trust and what am i collecting data for what's the purpose of it what's it going to be used for who's going to have it what does it mean if I give this data away about myself or give this data about myself away? Um, and that, again, comes back to clear communication, respect of diversity, respect of the need to include people, um, and being mindful and respectful of those people. Um, so, you know, the, the, the ethnic minority groups is, is one, but people who have got disabilities is another. Uh, and people who might have <clears throat> um, challenges with articulating how they how they um, how they speak to us, how they communicate with us. And that gets back to, you know, the, the, the efforts of the Scottish government in the very early days of the pandemic, right out of the blocks, had somebody there who was, who was signing what the First Minister was saying and what the other experts were saying. And, and just being respectful enough of the diversity of society to make an overt gesture to say, I am respecting the fact that there's diversity within our society, um, begins to bridge that trust that I think is needed from all of us, um, such that we're all included in both the collection of the data, but in how we choose to have that data be used. So I think a lot of it is about, it's not just about um, the data collection processes. It's also about ensuring that everybody in society has a voice and that everybody in society is empowered to use that voice and that everybody in society feels that that voice matters. And I think those are the things, that's where we have to start. Um, After that, there's all of the complexities then of, well, how do we make sure that our algorithms aren't going to be biased and how do we make sure all of, but that's actually nuts and bolts to a large extent. Um, The first stage is getting people to buy in and you do that by respect, by kindness, by compassion and by trust. Final question from me, and and, and maybe a a slightly unfair one, but, you know, having learned all that we have um, from the pandemic and seeing how it's evolved across the year, if you could go back to January 2020 now when all this was emerging and provide one piece of advice to government, what would it be? (laughs) Um, That's a horrible question. (laughs) So what would it be? I think hindsight is a a great um, tool. I think for me, the thing that government had to do um, from the very, very get-go of this is communicate properly, is communicate clearly, is communicate in a way that was multifaceted but with the same message. So communicate in in uh, language, in reports, in visuals. So all of that, use all of their arsenal, but to do it in a way that was clear, precise, um, but in a way that people understood what the message was and what the caveats were around it. 
Um, so I think communication is critical. But also that communication needs to be one that engages people with the mindfulness that engagement is a two-way street. Um, so uh, and, and that, that, that engagement process needs to be done with compassion and with empathy. Thank you. Professor Neve McDade, thank you for sharing your experience and expertise with us today on how we can use the learning from COVID to make better use of data, evidence and science in the future. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you.